0: Lord, we do uh, just do commit our time to you and agree with those prayers and do want to remind us to pray for Sharon. In fact, all of the missionaries and all those that you've given us um, awareness of, to that have needs and people that, uh, especially those that don't know you, that we may continually pray for them and that you may touch them. And as we look into this passage, that we would be encouraged as well, and that it would uh, motivate us to uh, seek your will in walking with you on a consistent basis, and that we may uh, take advantage of all the opportunities you present to us. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at a familiar passage to many of you, some of you have probably looked at this passage probably more than many of the other passages here, except maybe that uh, Romans 10 passage. And a lot of times it is misused as well, so hopefully we'll clarify any of that. I call it a parable, or at least I identified it as a parable in the outline. It's not strictly speaking a parable, it's more of an illustration. But it illustrates very, very clearly what Paul has been talking about basically throughout the book of Romans up to this point. And it also introduces us to uh, the next passage, which is one of the highlights of the whole section of Romans 9 through 11. So it's uh, an important illustration. And in the first century, there there might have been, at the time that Paul writes the book of Romans, a majority of Jewish people that made up the church, maybe not so much in Rome, but throughout the uh, empire and certainly in uh, Judea and around that area of the world. But there was a significant number of Jews in Rome, and obviously there were Gentiles as well. So, he's addressing this issue, the relationship between Jew and Gentile, and focusing particularly with this illustration, I think, on the Gentiles. So, quickly, we've seen in chapter 9 through verse 29, God sovereignly choosing Israel, which means he can do with Israel as he pleases. He can set them aside, and he can work with other people, because he is sovereign, And Israel is responsible for their own setting aside and or rejection, and in fact, in the period in which we are living, they're under discipline. That's 930 through the end of chapter 10. We're looking at chapter 11 that speaks of that rejection as being partial and not permanent, And looking at it from the positive, there is a future restoration, a future salvation for, in fact, the nation corporately. So 11 leads up to that, and the passage we're looking at kind of is a transition into uh, the most clear passage where it says that all Israel shall be saved. A reminder of the context, there's only a remnant in Israel. And uh, this is a believing remnant, 11, 1 through 10, or 1 through 6 specifically. There's only a remnant of believing Jews, and uh, the rest are hardened. That's 7 through 10. The rest of the nation of Israel is in unbelief. Paul uses a variety of ways of describing that. I gave you a whole list of them. What was it? About eight different ways he describes this hardening. Uh, They have transgressed. They have been, they've rejected and are rejected. So that leads to the question, is God finished with Israel? And it's a debate that still goes on even in our day. And a large portion of the, Broader Christian church, I use the word in a broad sense, including even the apostate church, but much of that believes that Israel is finished, God is finished with them, and He's replaced Israel with the church. It might not be stated overtly, but this is kind of the thinking, at least, of probably the majority of believers. It's only those that are the most conservative that see this not only sharp distinction, Sometimes we're called dispensationalists. In some circles, that's, that's a dirty word. That's hate speech. <laughs> but we believe that uh, God has a distinct plan, and there's a plan for Israel, and we're in a period of time where God is dealing with the church, but the church has not replaced Israel. Israel. And this parable brings that out fairly clearly, so we'll take a look at the parable. So we have a remnant that is always present, verses 1 through 10, even in the Old Testament. In fact, the examples that Paul uses are, some of them are from the Old Testament. He uses himself in the the New Testament and also indicates that there'll be a remnant uh, even throughout the following time frames, which we identify as the church age. And even beyond that, even that seven year period, there's going to be a remnant. And the restoration of Israel is yet future from not only Paul's day, but in our day as well 11 through 32. So we've been stressing the purposes of Israel's failure. And there are many of them, and let me just quickly review them and put them on a timeline as well. So these purposes, I've kind of drawn out six of them. Three of them are the most prominent in the passage. Uh, One of them is more subtle, but there is a purpose statement in verse 11 that indicates that Israel is not permanently rejected Paul says, I say then, they did not stumble, in other words, trip, so as, that's the purpose statement, so as to fall in a permanent sense. They did not stumble, so as to fall did they, and then he answers that with the emphatic negation, may it never be. And then he begins to outline some of these purposes. So we can put this on a timeline, if you will. And uh, this timeline, the cross indicates the crucifixion, the coming of Messiah, and we have national Israel, but Israel is rejected, and in the time frame that Paul writes, he writes the book about 56, 57, some scholars put it a little bit earlier, maybe as early as even 54, the writing of the book, so it's before 70 AD, but he has already announced, and it's clear that God has set national Israel aside. They are the hardened, and then in 70 AD, they will be destroyed as a nation, and that'll be a, a destruction that is total, at least in that generation, but in terms of the people and in terms of God's dealing, it's only a tempor- temporary re- rejection, And there's some indications in the New Testament that the believers of that time felt like the second coming was very, very soon. And God would, uh, if they believed Romans 11, God would restore Israel shortly. Well, we've been living for 2,000 years or about that. And we're still anticipating that restoration even today. So we're living in a time where there's a remnant of Israel that uh, continues. There's a remnant in the past, and Paul has distinguished between national Israel and true believers within Israel, and he describes them as a remnant. The rest are hardened, according to uh, verse 7. We talked about 7 through 10, the hardening of Israel. So, in verse 11, "...but by their transgression salvation has come to the Gentiles." So we can see a second purpose that God is working as a result of Israel rejecting the Messiah. Salvation has gone out to the Gentiles. And there's a, there's a third purpose to make them jealous at the end of verse 11. And I've been stressing uh, this little emphasized purpose of the church age and, chur- and the church in general. God has designed that believers in the church age should live in such a way, now I'm kind of expanding it, it doesn't say that in the text, but we can uh, conclude that, that God desires that the church or people within the church live in such a way that the Jews see something of what they have missed by rejecting the Messiah. So it's to make them desirous of the things that we have, the spiritual things. So we drew that as an application. And as a result of that, because of Gentiles coming in, it has blessed the world. And Israel, even without consciously putting in effort to bless the world, has already blessed the world in the writing of Scripture, already has blessed the world in the coming of Messiah himself that offers salvation to all. And all of the byproducts of that relationship, hospitals, orphanages, efforts to minister to the world. So the, the world has been enriched in verse 12. Now, if their transgression be richest for the world and their failure be richest for the Gentile, he anticipates how much more will their fulfillment. So he's already hinting that there's going to be a restoration. And then in verse 13, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles and as much Then, as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy, picking up the end of verse 11, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. That's actually in verse 14. So, the salvation of some of the Jews would be a byproduct of that jealousy as a result of Jewish people seeing what. God is accomplishing in the Gentiles, some of them will actually break through their hardness and trust in the Messiah. So we can put that on a timeline, and God has introduced a work on the day of Pentecost. We could view that as the beginning of the church. The church does not begin at the crucifixion of Christ. There's something of a transition, even the resurrection of Christ. But 50 days later, God sends the Holy Spirit as is promised by by the Lord in the upper room discourse, and we could view that as the beginning of the church age that is run all the way into the time frame in which we are living in. So we have a church age, Uh, viewing it from a Jewish perspective, we could call it an inter-advent age, in other words, between the two messiahs, which kind of overlaps the church age from the coming of Messiah for the first time to the coming of Messiah the second time. Now, the church age in this parable is going to warn concerning what's going to happen during the church age, but also at the end of it. Verse 15 speaks of a transformation for if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead. Now, I took that to mean a giving of life as if something was dead. And I think Jeff pointed out last time that that's probably an allusion to uh, the dry bones of Ezekiel 37, and I would agree with that. I think the regathering of Israel in the land that eventually not only do those dry bones come to life, but the Spirit of God is breathed into them And there's a revival that causes all of Israel to be saved, which introduces the second coming of Christ and the millennial kingdom, where the world will even be transformed more than ever before. So the riches of the world will even be greater during that millennial kingdom, when Israel is, in fact, the prominent nation once again. So these are six purposes that I see in this passage is the ultimate transformation of the world, that all stem from Israel's rejection. So we can put this on our timeline. The end of the church age is the rapture, where the church is going to be taken out. I think Paul alludes to that in this parable. That's why I introduce it here. And then God is going to work... Now he doesn't mention this in uh, Romans 11, but the book of Revelation, and there's some Old Testament passages that speak of two olive trees. And the book of Revelation calls them two witnesses. God's gonna bring about two prophets. They're called witnesses in Revelation 11. And the way I put together the chronology there, there's gonna be a massive response among, among the Jewish people at least 144,000 special instruments of God will be raised up, and these will be God's instrument in evangelizing the rest of the world. And these 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7 says they go out and minister to every nation, all the tribes, all of the peoples, and this would include other Jewish people as well. So there's going to be a tremendous, in fact, the greatest revival that the world has ever seen is during this seven-year period of time that takes place, not beginning with the rapture, but beginning with a signing of a covenant with the Antichrist. There may be a small period of time between the rapture and the signing. Uh, It's possible that they're simultaneous, but more likely that there's a short period of time in there. The prophets are raised up, and now God has, in fact, as he warns in this parable, we'll see at the end of it, we probably won't get there today, but Paul is warning that if Gentiles are without faith, they can be set aside just as Israel was set aside, and there will come an end to the church age. Now, he doesn't spell it out, but we can see that from other passages as well. But he does hint, and very clearly he predicts that all Israel shall be saved. It'll be as a result of the ministry of the 144,000, where we'll have the turning on a national basis of the nation of Israel. Not necessarily every, or not every single Jew, but just as the nation rejected the Messiah in the first century, and that rejection was not... 100%, there was a remnant, so also the opposite will be taking place at the end of the seven years, where not every single Jew will believe in the Messiah, but nationally, as a position, the nation will accept their Messiah, and then Messiah returns, and then we have that uh, transformation of the world, it'll even be a physical transformation, It'll include the natural realm as well, where parts of the curse are lifted, and we have what is called the millennial kingdom. Revelation spells that out specifically a thousand years. So I've kind of expanded your little illustration of the olive tree here and what Paul is saying in chapter 11, putting it all on a a timeline. Now, we left off with verse 16, so let's pick up there. After he talks about this life from the dead, many scholars take that as final resurrection, physical resurrection. I think it's broader, as I've tried to demonstrate again today. And then, kind of a transitional verse, verse 16, kind of concluding what he's been saying in 11 through 15, to kind of sum up. And then the last phrase there, he's going to transition, and it's from that idea of the branches and the root of an olive tree that he'll spell out in verse 17 and on. So it's a little transition into the illustration that uh, we'll look at and focus on today. So in verse 16, we start off with, If the piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. Now, I'd like for somebody to look up Numbers. Would somebody look up Numbers? What he's getting at in this, he's, he's introducing an Old Testament concept. We may not be totally familiar, his audience, Jewish, at least Jewish people would be very familiar with passages like Numbers. In fact, somebody look up Numbers 15, and would you please read 17 through 21? Who's got it? What he's talking about here is the concept of the first fruits. Now, in verse 16, he's talking about dough. In other words, the product of the harvest, the wheat from the harvest. You'd make bread out of it. You'd bake it. Now, we ought to have Linda explain all of that process for us, and she's there. But who wants to read Numbers 15? I will, Ray. Go ahead beginning in verse 17 through 21
1: Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them when you enter the land where I bring you then I will then it shall be that when you eat of the food of the land you shall lift up an offering to the Lord of the first of your dough you shall lift up a cake as an offering as the offering of the threshing floor, so you shall lift it up. From the first of your dough, you shall give to the Lord an offering throughout your generations.
0: Okay, so he's talking about, in that context, he's talking about dough, so you would separate out, I've tried to illustrate it there with the photograph, a portion of it. Now, the whole concept of first fruits is the idea that by giving a portion, you're acknowledging that all of the harvest really belongs to God. It all belongs to him. He is the one that has granted us the ability. He's the one that has given us the rains that produce it and the soil and everything that went into it, all of the labor. All of that is from the Lord. So we're acknowledging by giving back a portion of it, That's the whole concept of first fruits. So you gave back a portion in the Numbers passage, which I think is referred to in uh, Romans 11. You separate out a portion of it. Now, I think it's assumed that you bake it along with the total lump, but that portion is an acknowledgement that the whole is the Lord's. And what he's saying here, if the first piece of dough is holy. Now, don't think that some magical, some special granting of some, uh, I don't know, holiness happens. Do you remember the word holy has that idea of something set apart, something separate? So that part that is set apart, that is separate means and represents the whole lump such that the whole lump now is made separate or, or viewed as separate. But it's all separate because it all belongs to the Lord. In other words, it, it all, we're, we're saying by offering a portion, I'm acknowledging that all of it belongs to you, Lord, and I'm giving back a portion that represents the whole. So, a portion represents the whole. And the concept of the first fruits involved not only the the wheat harvest and the grains, they also, there's other passages in other portions like Leviticus that speak of separating out a portion of the wine. So, that would be the product of the, the grapes and the fruits of the land. There'd be the giving of money, the, the portions that were set aside, and in all of these, we're acknowledging the, the concept of the first fruits. I give a portion back to recognize that the whole belongs to God. So all of the wine, all of the money, all of my resources belong ultimately to him, and I'm simply acknowledging it by giving back to him a portion of it. So that's the concept that he has here. That even includes the time. Uh, The Sabbath was the day that was made holy or set apart. And we acknowledge on the Sabbath, all my time belongs to you. I'm setting aside a portion devoted to you, Lord, acknowledging it all belongs to you. So the concept of the first fruits means that you're setting aside the rest ultimately to God. And what he's saying in verse 16 of of Romans, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also the analogy here. If there's a remnant that is set apart, and he's already kind of made that point, then because that remnant comes out of the entire nation, there is a sense that doesn't, mean that every Jew is now saved, he's not talking about salvation here. He is saying that this portion, this remnant of the Jewish people sets aside the whole nation in such a way that God is not abandoning them, not rejecting them totally and completely. They are set aside such that God eventually, in time, will in fact bring them into that saving relationship and fulfill all of those promises. Similarly, he gives them a second illustration that he's going to expand, beginning in verse seventeen. Ray, go ahead.
2: Excuse me. This very seems to me is it, this is very similar to uh, the Jews in the wilderness. You know, and basically, you have a remnant, and even though it was generational, that that uh, went on into the promised land uh, but it didn't mean that the Jews that, that died uh, in the wilderness were lost uh, um,
0: to well the point
2: that you're making about salvation that's not a soteriology
0: yeah it's not
2: yeah
0: it's not dealing with individual salvation but looking at them as a lump I guess you could say, and or the second illustration as uh, an, a complete olive tree. Yeah, you need to separate out the individuality with kind of this big picture that he's he's giving us here in terms of Israel nationally and corporately. He's going to do something similar with the Gentiles in this passage as well. So There's another
2: similarity there too, which you're going to get to in a minute that strikes me, is that the those who... Were removed. Were cut off from the root. Were once in it. Yes. And, uh, so that's also similar, I think, to the Jews in the in the uh, uh, wilderness. You know, the wilderness.
0: Yeah, and and you could even expand that. Not only Jews during the wilderness, but you could you could see that throughout Israel's history, there has always been that remnant that has maintained that relationship with God that God intended. And via that remnant, that peace, you might say, that is set apart, God honors his covenant. We're going to get to that in a moment here, uh, to those people that he entered into covenant with. Now, that doesn't mean that every one of them have eternal life or salvation, but it deals with God's promises to them as a nation. So keep that. We've been distinguishing that throughout 9 through 11. So now he uses an illustration of an olive tree. And if you look at an olive tree, it has obviously a trunk, it has branches, and it has roots. And in the illustration here, I think at least the roots are an illusion or an illustration of Abraham. God set him apart from all the peoples in that day, called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, made some promises to him, and in fact, entered into a covenant with Abraham. Now, God renewed, and some view the roots as not just Abraham, but Isaac and Jacob. And God did, in fact, renew the Abrahamic covenant with Isaac and renewed it with Jacob. So Abraham, I think in the illustration, at least represents the root, the root of the olive tree. And God has set apart Abraham and set him apart by covenant and Abraham's descendants by covenant. We call that the Abrahamic covenant. So Abraham is set apart. He's the roots. Everything else, in fact, the promise of a nation given to Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. He is the the roots from which the nation sprung out and grew into a tree and uh, brought forth not only branches, and if you want to even extend the illustration, it's not extended here, but you might think that God designed this olive tree to produce what? Olives, to produce fruit. But many of the branches obviously did not produce fruit. So Abraham is set apart by covenant, and the branches, that means that the branches are set apart. That's the point of the illustration. If the root is holy, the branches are too. In other words, they are set apart because they stem from the root. See the illustration he's using? So now he's going to expand this illustration with uh, beginning in verse 17, with this, what I call a parable of the olive tree. I'm simply alliterating here, 17 through 24. And uh, we'll look at the first part of that, which is really a warning against arrogance. So let's take a look at it. And it's been a while since we've kind of broken down a sentence. Remember, I've been encouraging you for as long as I can remember. When you study the Bible, you want to study it not verse by verse, but sentence by sentence. So you need to identify and locate a complete sentence. In this case, it goes all the way to the verse, verse 18, 18. And I've also encouraged you, as you kind of try to figure out what Paul is saying, in other words, thinking God's thoughts after God, you want to see what is the main thrust of a sentence, and you do that by identifying the independent clause that'll contain the main thought. So the main thought of this sentence, well, I won't tell you what it is, I'll ask you, can anyone identify the independent clause? where well, actually, there's two of them, but identify the first independent clause of this long sentence that begins in verse 17 with the but and doesn't end till the you. There's the period at the end of verse 18. Who wants to take a stab at it? What is the independent clause? That's going to give you the essence of what Paul is saying here. I've already hinted at it, by the way. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Very good. Very good. There's a Greek scholar that has transferred his skills to English. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. That's the independent clause. Do you see that? Can somebody answer why is that the independent clause and, and everything before it not? Can anyone identify that before Jim gives it away?
1: Because it's an if clause.
0: Okay. It's a conditional if clause. That's redundant, I guess. It's an if clause that makes it a conditional clause, but it's a, and a conditional clause is is a dependent clause. And that dependent clause doesn't end till the comma after tree, just before you get to verse 18. Do you see that? Everybody see that? See the point I'm making here? Let's just read it. If some and notice it doesn't end, if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive, he's implying tree there, olive tree, were grafted in among them, and it continues with an and, and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, comma, so that if clause runs all the way through through the entire verse 17, and you don't get to the main clause till you get to verse 18, and it's an exhortation. Do not become or do not be arrogant toward the branches. So that's the essence, at least part of the essence of this whole sentence. Everything else is just telling us under what conditions that we have, the conditions of The breaking off of branches and this grafting in idea. So all of the grafting in and the breaking off, all of that supports or tells us uh, something about the independent clause. Would somebody care to try to identify the second independent clause?
1: Remember that it is not you who supports the root.
0: I'll give you half credit on that one because you included... The that clause, which is a dependent clause. So mm-hmm.
1: Okay, here it is. So the root supports you. Is that it?
0: That's I think that's still part of the that clause. Oh dear. Oh dear.
1: Remember that,
0: no. <laughs> no, I think you got it.
1: Remember that's that it, it is not you who supports you. Okay, there,
0: the there's the independent clause, but Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Okay. All right. But remember, (laughs) very good. So eventually got to it. So you have two independent clauses. One of them is a warning, and the other one is a kind of a reminder of a situation. Everything else is dependent. So that's why I title it in my outline there, the first warning, which implies that there's going to be another one later on. So... These are things that you want to note to try to figure out with all of these words what is the essence of what, in this case, Paul is trying to communicate here. So it's a warning. Everything else is telling us something about it. Everything else is important, but not as important as what you have contained in the independent clause. Got that? Do you remember this? Remember, we've done this lots of times in the past. But things to notice. First of all, we've already said that this is an illustration and the reason I mention this is there are some that take the illustration too far and one of the things that people do with this illustration, for example, that uh, Jim already pointed out, is they, they take this illustration and apply it on an individual basis and if you do that, then you can come to some wrong conclusions concerning soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. So take it as it's intended. An illustration is designed to illustrate usually one or a few ideas, uh, the main ideas, and it's dealing primarily on a national scale dealing with the nation of Israel. So it's an illustration. It's like a parable, you might say. Secondly, if you look at the, the details Almost all of the commentators point out that it's contrary to normal practice. In other words, in actual agriculture or horticulture, however you want to identify it, you usually take a branch from uh, a cultivated tree and you uh, graft it into a wild tree in order to make the wild tree more productive. Now, some of the commentators... Point out that you could do both. You could do what Paul describes here. But either way, uh, you don't want to take the parable too far. I think what Paul is definitely trying to convey here is the concept of grace. And just by the use of the contrary to natural practice, and by the way, he's going to use the word contrary to nature in verse 24, and I think even earlier, three or four times kind of hinting at this idea that this is contrary to what you would expect. This is something unusual, something different. This is according to grace. And even though the word is not used, I think that underlies what Paul is saying in here. So I think we want to notice that. So this is not normal agriculture, you might say. And as we just pointed out, you want to make sure that you understand that in the main clauses, verse seventeen and eighteen, we have imperatives. We have two of them: do not be arrogant. In fact, do be arrogant negated, and uh, and also to remember something. And what we are to remember is what God is dealing. How God is dealing with these two groups that Paul has already laid out in the first part of this major division. 9 through 11. But let's go look at some of the details. Let's look at uh, this conditional clause in the first part. If some of the branches were broken off, and uh, as Jim already pointed out, you want to notice the sum, some of the branches. Why does he say some of the branches?
1: To indicate not all.
0: Not all. So, he's alluding to that remnant that he's been talking about. So, the remnant are still plugged into the root and they are enjoying the blessing of the root, the sap that comes from the root. But some have been broken off. They're cut off from uh, the life that comes from the root. And those are the ones that are hardened that he's described earlier. So, You do want to notice the sum here that refers to the the hardening or those that have transgressed and all of the words that Paul uses to describe the unbelieving portion of the nation of Israel. So let's take a look at this illustration and see what Paul is talking about here. And some of you might remember this very spot. Does anyone remember this very spot Where was this photograph taken? In fact, I took this photograph. That's an olive tree. In the
1: olive of Gethsemane.
0: That's Gethsemane. Yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah. And that's an olive tree. Now, some of the tour guides, I don't know if it's true or not, but some of them, it probably is because these olive trees last for years and years, but some of, uh, I don't remember if our tour guides mentioned, but. Some of these date back to the first century, maybe one like this that has this huge, broad uh, trunk to it. But what supports that olive tree, obviously, are roots that you can't see that are below ground. And then you have the branches above that are designed to bear fruit. Now, this trunk may have, in the past, had several graftings, if you will. And it continues to, to flourish to this, this very day. That makes it clearer the location there. There's a another olive tree. And anyone remember that church there where the Garden of Gethsemane is located, or at least the traditional site. Anyone remember the name of that church in the background there?
1: Is that the rock where he prayed?
0: Well, there's not a rock there, but What's that? Uh, there yeah, that, uh, there would have uh, been if that is the actual
1: like a slab
0: site. Yeah. Uh. And uh, the church there is the church of all nations. I don't oh. show you the front of it. That's Gethsemane. So let's take a look at this grafting idea. I think part of what is being conveyed here is God is proving himself faithful to all of the promises, faithful to the covenants that he's made with the nation of Israel. So underlying this parable, underlying chapters 9 through 11 is the faithfulness of God. We've been stressing that as we've looked at the individual passages. But in this immediate context and this illustration, I think the essence of it, do you remember? He's already addressed. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Remember we saw that passage earlier. And I think this parable is a warning to them because he's referring to Israel, almost he identifies them as them or they. So here's a warning to the Gentiles. And I've mentioned that typically you cultivate a wild, you cultivate into a wild tree to increase its productivity. And Paul seems to reverse the unnatural, which indicates grace that we've already talked about. Now notice also, And you, now you can't tell from the English, but in the Greek text, he's going to consistently in this passage refer to the you as a singular. You, singular, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them. Why do you think he uses a singular here?
1: Because everyone has to come to Christ on their own?
0: Nope. Jim's going to give it to you, right? What did Jim already mention?
2: Well, it's looking at the Gentiles as a group.
0: As a unit, yes. He's looking at Gentiles as a unit. Now, he's not saying that every... This is where you can go wrong in terms of... He's not saying that every Gentile, every single Gentile now is grafted in amongst them, but he's looking at the Gentiles who are grafted in, and he's looking at them as a unit, as a whole. In other words, I don't want to use the word corporately because that kind of gives an idea of the corporate national Israel, but as a unit, you might say, you singular. Now, he's going to be consistent throughout. You can't tell from the English, but the you there, he's referring to Gentiles, as a unit, but he's even, because of what he's already said, this is where you don't want to press the details of a parable. I think what he's doing here is identifying those that are grafted in, those that are genuine, and he's looking at them as a whole. You being a wild olive, and you might insert branch, olive branch were grafted in among, and notice the them, if some of the branches referring to the remnant that are attached to the root, and now we're grafted in among them, amongst those that are still attached. So I think what he's doing here is identifying the Gentiles as one or as a a unit. And to kind of illustrate what this looks like in actual practice, here's a Branch that has been grafted in and it also shows the other branches that are unproductive that have been cut off because they're unproductive. And now it allows for not only the space, but it allows for the sunlight and room to grow of that part that is grafted in. Now there's two parts there. So Ray? Yes. Go ahead.
1: Ray, I just have a quick question. So so when you say Gentiles are grafted in, does that mean we're all grafted in, but we're given the ability to partake of this free gift, or is it just believers that are grafted in? I'm, I think I'm a little confused.
0: I think it's, no, I think it's believers. I think it's believers because they are the only ones that partake of the root. But he's looking at the believing Gentiles as a unit. Just as he's looking at Israel as a unit, and he separates out Israel, there's the remnant and there's the hardened. Now, he doesn't do that in terms of Gentiles, but he's assuming that you understand what he's getting at here.
3: Okay, that that's clears that up. Thank you.
0: Mm-hmm. So here's the arrow kind of points to the the grafting portion, which is probably obvious anyway. And notice that some branches have been cut off. So this is kind of a a real illustration that Paul uses. And then verse 17, and in other words, we're grafted in the the wild olive branch. That's why it might be good to include branch there because it's not an entire olive, a wild olive tree. Does that help also? Uh, Was that Connie that was asking? So it's an olive branch. We're grafted in among them and become or became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Now you can see the illustration. You can have a mental picture of what he's talking about here. But notice the the little phrase, become partaker with them. You're familiar with the word koinonia? Can somebody tell me what koinonia means, the noun form or... Or the verb form koinonea, ne'o?
1: Fellowship.
0: Fellowship. Or partaking get... partaking together. The idea of sharing. And in this case, we have a preposition that has the idea of together with or partnership, you might even say. There's the term there. Sun koinononos. No sun koinononos. Sun koinononos. We are spiritual sharers with the some that are still attached, which would be the believing portion of Israel. And now a believing portion of Gentiles are attached and we share as well. And then verse 18, we have obviously the warning, do not become arrogant towards the branches. I think Paul is even... In the first century, he either at least anticipates and or is already observing a beginning of pride within the Gentile portion and maybe even at Rome, even though he was not there yet. But he's probably already sensing and having a report that the Gentiles are thinking in terms of this idea of replacement theology. It may go all the way to the first century because of the warnings that he has very clearly in verse 18. And then we're going to have another warning later on. So do not become arrogant towards the branches. In other words, don't think that uh, you're anything special. He's going to expand upon that. And don't even think that you are in any way superior to uh, the Jewish, the Jewish people, because God has rejected them. Don't think that God is replacing you with, or replacing them with you. So it's a, a very clear command, and it's a it's a very uh, strong word. Actually, it's a compound word. It has the idea of pride behind it. But and then. He goes on, if you, singular again, are arrogant, now we have the second command. We have a condition, if you are arrogant, so that's a dependent clause. Remember, and that's a complete independent clause by itself, supported by uh, three dependent clauses. The condition of the remembering, if you are arrogant, in other words, that's a condition, then you need to remember what are you to be remember we have the contents of the remembering that it is not you and then he gives another dependent clause who support the root and then part of this dependent clause but the root and in the greek there's no verb it kind of goes back to the supports there so the translators include it uh, who support the root but the root you would be literally and the you is singular as well who support the root, but the root supports you. So the only way that we have anything is because we have been grafted in, and this is contrary to nature. This is contrary to what would normally take place. This is a supernatural act that we have nothing to to boast about. So there's no room for arrogant. And, uh, It is the root that supports us. It's not the branch that supports the root. So we need to keep in mind. And I think what he's alluding to there with the root is the Abrahamic covenant that promises that Israel will bless the nations. And through that Abrahamic covenant, we have access to that root and that blessing that comes from the root. It is not inherent in us. It's not because of anything special. In fact, we're wild. We're a, a wild branch. And we have no rights. We have no claim to the root. The root supports us. So the root That's supports why you.
1: unhitching the New Testament from the Old Testament does not work.
0: That's exactly right, which some do. Exactly. So notice the singulars again. We've been stressing that you above in verse 17 and you being wild olive branch. But if you singular are arrogant, looking at the unit of believing Gentiles, remember that it is not you singular again who support the root, but the root supports you. And he's going to continue on later on in the following verses. So there's no room for any replacement theology here, and it's a call for basically humility and a recognition that this is a work of God, and everything that is involved here is contrary to what would take place apart from God's intervention, apart from the one that does the grafting. Somebody have a comment? Yeah,
3: this is Katie. I I just um, recall the um, the Samaritan woman at the well. Yes. And, and how um, you know probably in our eyes the least deserving um, receiving grace yes. from Jesus. Exactly. And uh, and then you know I I feel like that's just a you know one one of the many illustrations of Gentiles. Uh, being
0: grafted in. Yeah. And she was a Samaritan, which was kind of a halfway step. So even one step beyond the Samaritan woman is the Corneliuses of the world and all of us. So uh, humility is called for here. Well, that's probably a good place to stop. We'll look at verse 19 through 21, which is the second warning. And this one is against conceit. So why don't we stop there? It
2: it may also incorporate anti-Semitism.
0: Yes, which is the next step of replacement theology. Exactly. Yeah, anti-Semitism. Very good. Kind of a closing application. We are either growing in Christ as a living olive branch, or if we're not growing, we're in need of warning. And that's what this passage is doing, is warning us.
1: Uh, Ray, do we uh, do I have time to um, do something say something uh,
0: if it's brief oh.
1: okay well well I'm gonna close you out with one of the songs that we sing during the uh, communion service <laughs> get some money get-
4: pensando está en
5: ti y en mí otro recuerdo ex
1: Uh, Could you understand the word Gethsemane?
0: Oh, wow. I didn't catch that.
1: It's about seeing Christ um, kneeling in Gethsemane. Great. And it's all personal application. But, um, yeah, that's built entirely on the word Gethsemane. I can't even pronounce it in English anymore. Great. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, in a few minutes, in about five or six, seven minutes, Why don't we have uh, the bankies introduce themselves. You might turn on your camera and then we'll have a closing prayer and somebody be ready to pray. Also give us a prayer request for you guys. Go ahead, Mike. All
5: right. I will, uh, I'll do my best to make it brief, Ray. And uh, no problem. You know, Mike and Katie, you guys have known us for a little while now, but a little backstory on us. we both, were born and raised in San Diego County, California. Um, interesting thing about Caitlin and, and myself is uh, we grew up not knowing each other until high school, but we went to the same dentist, the same orthodontist, the same preschool. Grew up going to the same church our entire lives. Uh, we met in high school. I was a in the high the youth group in the youth in the youth group at church. Um, I was. Going into my junior year, Katie was an incoming freshman, and my group of guy friends saw her group of girlfriends coming in <laughs> and decided that we wanted to hang out with them, so um, that's kind of where it all started for us, too, and so we were high school sweethearts, but we did not go to the same high school, so we were rivals as well. He
3: um, would ditch school and meet <laughs> me at lunch, and we bring me tacos at lunchtime. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. You know, there's some guy bringing me tacos at lunch.
5: <laughs> yeah. For, for one reason or another, I didn't take high school all that seriously. Um, I even made it in her high school's, uh, yearbook as, pro- <laughs> as I was in the, the chess club, just because I happened to be <laughs> at her school, bringing her some lunch, uh, during the day that they were taking pictures. Um, But we uh, fell in love. We dated for almost six years, right? Six years. Six years um, before we got married in 2007. We've been married for 13 years now. Um, And we still lived in California. For a couple years, we moved up to the kind of northern California area, Mammoth Mountain uh, area, if you've heard of that. We managed a boat marina up there, part of Katie's family, has owned that since 1968 and we managed that for a couple years until we got pregnant with our second Silas, um, with our second kid Silas, and we wanted to move back down closer to the rest of the family. So we moved back down to San Diego and um, I guess long story short, after I worked for Target for about five years and then uh, God called us to Moved to Texas. And
3: I've, I've been home with the kids yes. this whole time. I went to nursing school, and um, the second half of nursing school, we were blessed with uh, getting pregnant with our first.
5: Yes. So um,
3: that's where my homeschool and uh, stay-at-home mom career took off.
5: Yeah, Katie yes. was, uh, I don't know how many months pregnant while she was taking her... Her nursing boards and oh, he was he was two months old when I took the nursing. Oh, process. that's right. Yeah. Here we okay. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, so yeah, we moved. We moved to Texas, and we now have five kids, all boys. Our oldest, Stephen, will turn eight in January, January first. Um, I work for Amazon now, and we we love it in Texas. We miss our California family and friends. Um, but we don't miss the politics we don't miss the politics or the cost of living so that's good uh we were able to move my parents out here to texas uh as well this whatever it was about two years ago a year year ago year and a half yeah um so katie's parents live in the same house as us and my parents live about 25 30 minutes away and we're having a lot of fun even during this time of uh Pandemic coronavirus, uh, growing deeper in our faith with uh, instruction from Ray and online uh, Bible studies that we're doing, and making the best of it and sharing
3: sharing with our neighbors too. Absolutely, really uh, blessed with some great neighbors, and um, you know, kind of uh, sharing with them about justification and sanctification, and uh, you know, it's it's just been real edifying having uh, neighbors that are Christ followers, and we can you know help help each other grow in our faith and it's it's just been
5: really neat so
3: here we are and uh I don't know what
5: else to say no, I think that's that's about <laughs> it unless there's any questions class
0: any questions prayer request what any what can we what can we can close in a prayer for you
1: I had a question um are you able to work during uh, the pandemic or are you totally unemployed
5: well, I guess it's a it's a blessing and a curse that you know, I work for Amazon and during this time of pandemic everyone's a lot of people have transitioned to solely online shopping, so work has not slowed down. I haven't missed any any days at work. In fact I'm working more hours than I ever did. Um, so yeah, work work is still there, going strong. No end in sight for Amazon and, and my career with them and Um,
3: But I think along with that goes the stress level of um, having to be at work more, especially um, during the holidays. And so I I guess that would be our main prayer request is uh, your stress, stress level at work and um, my managing the five boys at home a lot of the time throughout the week.
5: That would, that would be really the, the prayer request because I'm gone. I leave the house at, 5.30 in the morning and I usually don't get home until 8.30 at night. Um, So Katie's really, you know, raising the kids uh, five days out of the week on her own. And um, it is a very challenging time at work with all the regulations and restrictions because of the pandemic.
0: Um, Uh, Didn't you get just trying to manage? Didn't you get promoted as well?
5: Yeah. So I, I got promoted and I'm second in charge now of the whole building Um, which also explains why I'm working more hours, but it's, it's a really good challenge and I've used it to, um, connect with a lot of people and, uh, you know, I have my little Bible verse on my mask that I wear for 12 or 14 hours a day. And it's giving me a lot of opportunity for good conversations with, uh, my associates.
0: Katie's the one that made those masks and she sent me one. So I've got one with a Bible verse as well. Where do you
5: guys live? So we live in East Texas. Um, the closest big city it's, is called Gun Barrel City. Uh, you could find that on a map. So, and I drive uh, 65 miles each way to uh, Lancaster, Texas, where my building is
3: in in the city of Dallas, like yeah. a little little section it's of Dallas, suburb
5: of Dallas,
0: near Athens, Texas, as well. Right? Athens is pretty close, yes. you guys. Yeah. Yep. Yeah,
5: Athens is uh, the little city my parents live in,
0: oh.
3: and we bought a we bought a previous bed and breakfast just because of the the sheer size of our family, and it's just it was a good price. It was a foreclosure, so it's a long story. But if any of you find yourselves um, traveling through this area, we've got two oh, no. we've got two guest rooms with uh, private bathrooms, and you know you can you can totally spend some time with us. So we'd love to have any of you. Spend some time with us. Great.
0: Anyone care to pray for them and close for us today?
4: We have a question. Um, so, did you guys believe when you were young, since you had oh. Christian parents and were at youth group, or, or when did you become believe? That's kind that,
5: of an important part. <laughs> I had that at the. That was at the top of my note page, but I must have skipped over it. Yes, we we both saved at young age. I think I was five, and Katie was.
3: I was about five or five, so.
5: Five or so through the um, the little kid programs at Emmanuel Faith Community Church that we grew up going to, um, but I think we were both saved at home uh, with our parents, right? I I remember specifically.
3: I was young, but I remember the moment <clears throat> that I prayed with my mom in the kitchen on the ground, just sitting on the ground. I remember that moment. So um, that's that's a blessing. That, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people that become believers as children don't really remember the moment, which you know isn't crucial. But um, it's I I look back on that and go, well, that was neat, you know.
5: So. And, and two out of our boys have made uh, personal commitments. Three, three. Seth uh, just did too. Seth just did, but him, mm-hmm. I'm like, you understand, right? What you're what you're talking yeah, about? He, he does. Did. I really yeah. feel like it. So yeah. it's really cool as parents to be able to. Lead our kids um, and help them grow up in Christ. So. Yeah.
0: And one of one of them is a budding uh, Bible scholar, right?
3: Yes, Silas. I think he's going to be yeah a teacher of some sort of the word. Yeah,
5: he just—I mean, he just soaks in Scripture and memorizes it, and so it's really fun. Yeah,
0: yeah, great. <laughs> nice Who wants to, to pray for you. him? Somebody wants. Nice want to, to
5: meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you. We can pray for.
0: Great. Do it.
4: It's uh, Father God, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word with Ray and all that it contains and we pray that you would help us uh, humble hearts towards it. with respect to our position in the branch, knowing that it's the promises given to the Jews that supports that support us. And uh, Father God, we just uh, want to thank you for this group. We thank you in particular for, uh, Mike and Katie, who just shared about their, their life and uh, all the blessings that you've poured out upon them, all the amazing memories and all the different ways that you've worked in their lives from being young. We praise you that they uh, believed in your son at such a young age and that they have had uh, all of this time in their life to, um, to know you and to grow in the relationship with you. We thank you for their believing parents who taught them that at such a young age and we uh, also thank you for their amazing family and the five boys that you have given them and we pray that you would do that three of them have also believed in your son and we pray that the other two will when they're able to understand and um, that you would just protect them and that you would give Katie wisdom as she's raising them and teaching them, um, being at home by herself a lot. No doubt that that is um, a lot of hard work, but a uh, joy also. And, and we pray that you would just help her to do a, a good job and to continue doing a good job, Form our hearts and minds and young men who want to, who believe in you and want to serve you and be faithful to you as it is. We also thank you for uh, Mike and for the job that you've given him and just what an amazing opportunity that is that he has as the boss there to show to reflect the character of Christ in that workplace. And with the Bible verse on his mask, we pray you would uh, use him and open hearts, soften hearts to want to wanna ask him, why does he have that on his mask and why is that so important to him? that you would provide him opportunities and, and give him boldness to share. And um, and we pray that you would just help with his stress, especially this time of year, that you would allow things to run. That he's able to make it home at a good hour to be with his family oh in that role that he has there. In Jesus' name.
0: Amen. 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 Anyway, I- all right. Have a good week, everybody.
1: Take care, everyone.
0: See you
2: later. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks for sharing.
5: Thanks for your prayers. Thanks, everybody.
2: Bye-bye.
1: Bye.